This is our third week in the book of Hosea. And so far we've looked at chapters 1 to 3 of this book. And that section, it's kind of a section in itself, and it puts in place the big picture for us. We've said that no other book in the Old Testament reveals so much about the passion of God. In this book, God describes himself as a faithful husband married to a whore. That is how God chooses to picture his relationship with Israel. And he tells us that his relationship with Israel is a miniature version of his relationship with humanity. Way back in the book of Genesis, God committed himself to humanity. Like a husband taking wedding vows. Five times God said to Abraham, I will. And that commitment to Abraham was actually a commitment to all peoples on earth. God committed himself to bless all peoples on earth through Abraham's descendants. And in the centuries that followed those promises, God himself was like a perfectly faithful husband. And humanity was like a prostitute. Running after everyone but her husband. Giving her love to everything except her husband. That was clearly seen in the life of Israel. And God said to the prophet Hosea, I don't just want you to tell Israel all this. I want you to show Israel. God said, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And your relationship with an unfaithful wife is going to be a living illustration of my relationship to unfaithful humanity. Chapters 1 to 3 gave us that picture. And now the rest of the book is going to walk us around the picture. Chapters 4 to 14 are going to zoom in on certain parts of the picture. They're going to explain the details. And they won't always talk directly about marriage. But they are always explaining that big picture we've been given in chapters 1 to 3. Of a passionate, faithful God and his relationship to humanity, the prostitute. So with that in mind, this morning we're going to read from Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, through to chapter 6, verse 3. And if you haven't found it yet, it's on page 903 in the church Bibles, and in the larger print Bibles, 1403. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. 
But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against the priest. You stumble day and night and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terebrinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth Aven. And do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, he will devour their fields. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth Aven. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be led waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed 
trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he's not able to cure you, nor able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. This is God's word. And the key to this whole passage is the word know or knowledge. It appears in the very first verse, in the very last verse, and several times in between. This passage in Hosea is about the one we need to know. And we need to know how the word know is being used here. Remember, the big picture of the book is a picture of a marriage. And we are to think of the word no in the context of marriage. So this is not just about knowing information. It's about a relationship. There's a world of difference between me saying, I know my times tables and I know my wife. That first statement is about being familiar with data. The second statement is about an intimate relationship. Genesis chapter 4 says, literally, Adam knew his wife Eve. It's the same word that's used in our passage. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So in the context of a relationship, Saying a couple know each other means they give themselves to each other fully, without reserve. They relate to one another with trust and respect and commitment. They hold nothing back. The passage we've just read tells us we need to know God like that. We don't just need information about God. We need a living relationship with God. And that is what Israel in Hosea's day did not have. Hosea chapter 4 shows us what life is like when God is not known. Look again at chapter 4 verse 1. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. The word acknowledgement in our translations doesn't quite capture what we've just been talking about. It might make us think Israel has been denying that God exists. And that God just wants them to admit his existence. But Israel never denied God's existence. That was not the problem. The problem was they didn't have the kind of devoted relationship with God that we've just been talking about. So the better translation here would be, there is no knowledge of God in the land. There is no committed relationship. The Israelites know about God but they're not giving themselves over to God. And here's the outcome in verse 2. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is God's Ten Commandments turned upside down. When human beings don't know God, when they don't live in devoted relationship to God, It's human beings who suffer. In the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses was about to remind Israel of God's law, Moses said to them, do you know what will happen if you keep these laws? You will be a great nation. You will be a wise and understanding people. Keeping God's commands will cause you to thrive And flourish. And when we truly know God, we realize that. We realize He loves us. And so we accept that His blueprint for life is good for us. But when we hold God at arm's length, when we hold ourselves back from Him, then we distrust His commands. We become skeptical about his blueprint for life. And we are the ones who suffer. When we break all bounds, the result of that is not freedom. It's slavery and bloodshed that follows bloodshed. When human beings forsake their commitment to God, we forsake our commitment to one another as well. On the other hand, a people faithful to God will be faithful to one another as well. They will not be a people characterized by cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. When God is not known, one of the bitter outcomes is broken relationships. If there's one thing we need to see today in our culture... It's that the commands of God are not burdensome. They are the road to human flourishing. But we won't grasp that until we know God. Until we give ourselves fully to him. Trusting him without reserve. When we look at verse 3, it sounds very contemporary. 
Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are swept away. Because of this means because human beings don't know God. Without a relationship with God, our relationship with the environment is broken too. All of creation gets messed up. When God is not our priority, we end up breaking everything we touch. God's good gifts are destroyed. That's confirmed for us on the news every night of the week. Drought, famine, disappearing species. So much of it is the result of humanity breaking all bounds and wrecking the world in the process. Well, next, Hosea tells us that when God is not known, we're left with not only broken relationships, but also broken religion. Is it possible to be religious but not really know God? Yes. Can religious services go on without God? Of course they can. Can whole religious systems carry on without God? Definitely. We got a picture of that in the next verses. God speaks here first and mainly to the priests in Israel. Down in verse 6 he says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. Knowledge here is the knowledge we've been talking about. God says Israel is in a mess because she doesn't have a relationship with me. And God says one of the main reasons for that lack of relationship is that you, the priests of Israel, have quit teaching Israel my law. The word translated law is Torah. And it doesn't just mean God's commands. It's his word. His instruction. God says, you religious leaders were given the responsibility of teaching my word. So people could have a relationship with me. So they could hear from me and so they could respond to me. But now that you have rejected knowledge of me, now that you are ignoring my word, how are the people going to know me? God says to these priests, because you have ignored my word, I will ignore your children. Meaning, I will bring an end to your priesthood. It is not going to be carried on through your children, it's going to die out. The example of Israel shows us, it's very possible to have religious institutions that are not helping people to know God. Because they have abandoned God's word. So let's pray for church leaders. Pray they won't bring destruction on men and women by setting aside God's word. 
What a tragedy to spend your life in something that calls itself a church. To go through religious rituals, but never come to know God because God's word is not heard in that church. And when God's word is sidelined in religion, there are plenty of other things to take its place. Look at verse 7. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. The more religion there was in Israel, the more sin there was. Why? Because this is religion that has lost sight of its purpose. It's no longer helping people to know God. And so it's begun to view sin as something that's quite good for business, actually. In the Old Testament, God's law provided for the priests by giving them part of the animals that were sacrificed to God. They got to set aside part of the animal for their dinner and for their family. The priest's work didn't give them time or opportunity to farm the land like most other people did. So God fed them and their families from what other people gave to God. And that worked well so long as the priests were honorable. So long as the priests loved God. But when you have priests who don't know God, all sorts of abuses creep in. Pretty soon, the priests are hardly even pretending to serve God anymore. They're in the business of religion just to serve themselves. Why try to lead people away from sin and towards God when more sin means more profit for the priesthood. More sacrifices for sin mean more roast dinners for the priests. Corrupt religion is nothing new. When the church sidelines God's word, it is sidelining the way to know God. And before long, living relationship with God degenerates into either dead tradition or exploitation by religious leaders or the kind of religion you make up as you go along. That's what we find down in verse 12. God says, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Israel has not given up being religious. It's just that without knowledge of God, their religion is man-made. One commentator says the religion described here is the religion of spiritually clouded minds. In verse 12, they consult a wooden idol, is literally, they ask a tree. 
Why pray to God when you can pray to part of his creation? Something that you can see and touch. A diviner's rod speaks. That's a reference to the practice of watching a stick fall and taking guidance from which way it falls. Somehow in Israel that has become more appealing than relationship with the living God. And in our own society, it's simply not true that we are becoming less religious. We're as religious as ever. It's just that our religion has been redirected to horoscopes, seances, paganism. And the most popular of all, do-it-yourself religion. Find a set of beliefs that work for you. Pick and choose from this and that. Cobble together a bit of meditation, mindfulness. Whatever helps you feel peaceful. Never mind if it's true. Never mind whether it's genuine knowledge of God. Verse 13 shows us more of Israel's do-it-yourself religion. The background to this is God had designated one place of worship. The temple in Jerusalem. That was the one place of worship because that is the one place where God truly made himself present. Above the ark in the Holy of Holies. That's where you could find God. But by this stage, Israel has filled the land with their own little shrines. On the mountaintops and the hills. It's easy to build your own altar. You can be religious without that big trip to Jerusalem. You can be religious without listening to God. The main thing is, does it work for you? And so Israel did their religion under oak, poplar and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Who cares if it's real? Who cares if I really know Almighty God? I'm happy if I can do my religion where the shade is pleasant. This is religion where comfort is the only priority. Forget obedience, forget repentance, forget listening to God. And it is so easy to fall into that kind of outlook. It's easy because real relationships can be unsettling. Real relationships don't always go according to our plans. That's true with with other human beings and it's true with God. God doesn't always give us what we want. He doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. And so it's always tempting to do what Israel did, to come up with our own ideas about God instead of listening to him, to come up with our own ideas about worship instead of listening to him. Maybe we come up with a God who's always happy whatever we want to do. He'll always support us and reassure us and he'll always tell us just follow your heart. He won't ever disagree with us or challenge us. That's not the real God. 
But how many people imagine that's what God's like? And they don't want to be told otherwise. Other people imagine a God who's a bit more grumpy. He's a bit harder to please. But we can get him on our side probably with a bit of church attendance or giving to charity or by avoiding murder and adultery. We think if we can manage that, then God will be there to get us out of difficulty when we need him to. That is no different from what Israel was doing. Never mind knowing God, we'll worship God how we want, where the shade is pleasant. I think we're all in danger of thinking that way sometimes. And so we need to hear what comes next. Look down to chapter 4, verse 16. The Israelites are stubborn. Like a stubborn heifer, how then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out at Tabor. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. As we've seen before, the better translation is, they do not know the Lord. All that religion, but they don't know the Lord. And God says, how can I shepherd these people? How can I pasture these people like lambs in a meadow? When they're not interested in knowing me when they're knee-deep in rebellion against me, when their hearts are bent on running from me instead of seeking me. God says those who don't want to know me need to realize I am the God who cannot be avoided. Look down to chapter 5, verse 8. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth Aven. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. 
I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. God says to Israel, you might not want to know me, but it is not possible to avoid me. In the ancient world, a trumpet blast signaled the approach of the enemy. And here in verse 8, God says, sign the trumpet for my approach. My wrath is coming. God says, I'm coming not as the good shepherd. I'm coming as the tearing lion. And when I come, no one else can help you. Notice in verse 13, God foretells that Israel is so far from knowing him that when things begin to deteriorate, when God's wrath causes the nation to begin rotting, when Israel realizes she's sick, she's not going to seek God. She'll seek help from other sources. In this case, from Assyria, the superpower of the day. But Assyria will not be able to cure what's wrong with Israel. It is not trade deals that Israel needs. It's not military backup that Israel needs. Israel needs to turn to God. And in fact, instead of being Israel's savior, it was the Assyrians who eventually took Israel into exile. Not many years after this prophecy. And today, God says to those who don't know him and who don't want to know him, God says, you cannot avoid me. If you refuse to know me in a relationship of love and trust and commitment, you will one day know me as the lion who tears to pieces. The history of Israel bears that out. But look again at the last verse of chapter 5, verse 15. God says, Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery they will earnestly seek me. When humanity refuses to seek God, he may come as the lion. He may bring terrible wrath on those who are stubborn, who are joined to idols instead of to him, who have a spirit of prostitution in their hearts. But when he comes that way, he comes so that in their misery, those men and women would abandon their stubbornness and seek his face. Even when he comes in history as the tearing lion. Even then, God has not abandoned his promises to Abraham. God has not gone back on his I will. God is still the loving husband. Until the end of time, he will use every means necessary to save his unfaithful wife. This romance 
is an eternal romance. It's not a temporary one. Even when he comes as the tearing lion, it is not so humanity would be lost. It's so that in their misery, humanity would turn from their other lovers and their false saviors and earnestly seek God himself, the true lover of their souls. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, the call comes through Hosea. It comes to the men and women of Israel and the men and women of today. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. We've seen throughout this passage, the best translation is, let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. And we can press on to know God because he has shown himself to be the God who wants to be known. In verse 2, after two days and on the third day, that's a way of saying this is certain. Those who seek God find he does heal, revive, and restore. He does welcome us into his presence. He is the God who wants to be known. He's the God who through it all longs for reconciliation with his unfaithful wife. Those who seek him can seek him with confidence. And look at the promise in the second half of verse 3. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Around 750 years after Hosea spoke those words, the Lord did come, searching for his wife. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. John's Gospel says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. And supremely, Jesus has made the love of God known. On the cross, Jesus was torn to pieces so that we wouldn't have to be. On the third day, Jesus rose so we can rise to live in the presence of God. If you want to know God and be known by God, then give yourself to Jesus Christ. Give yourself fully and without reserve. Press on to know him and he will heal you. 
He will bind up your wounds. He will revive and restore you. He will lead you all the way to the presence of God. So don't be satisfied with do-it-yourself religion. It might be comfortable, but it is lifeless. In the end, it's hopeless. You will find the reality in Jesus Christ. We're going to join in singing a song that reminds us there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus. All I once held dear.